Have you ever been on a mountaintop? The next slide I have includes a picture of me with my five kids on a mountaintop in Colorado five years ago. Now, I enjoy that picture, but the one thing about being on a mountaintop is this. When you're on a mountaintop, there's only one place to go. That's down. Another way to think about that is this. Have you ever got something that you really wanted that you just thought, you know, this, this is the one thing I need in my life, but you found out that it didn't really satisfy you in the long run like you thought it would. Maybe it was just winning some game or winning a championship. Maybe it was completing high school or college or getting the job you thought you always wanted or getting married or having kids or buying a house or going on that perfect vacation. I've read that lottery winners often regret winning the lottery, even though they think that's going to solve all their problems. Deion Sanders was one of the most famous athletes in the world 25 to 30 years ago as both a baseball player, a football player. Uh, many years ago, I read in, his, and he read in his book, Power, Money, and Sex, How Success Almost Ruined My Life. He said this, I remember winning the Super Bowl that year, that night after the game, I was the first one out of the locker room, the first one to the press conference and the first one to go home. And I remember my wife, Carolyn, saying to me, baby, you just won the Super Bowl. Don't you have a party downstairs or something to go to? And I just said, nah. And I rolled over and went to sleep. That same week, I bought myself a brand new $275,000 Lamborghini. And I hadn't even driven a mile before I realized no, that's not it. That's not what I'm looking for. It's got to be something else. Even in my own life, I remember after courting my wife and finally getting her to say that she would marry me the second time I asked her, she turned me down the first time, rightly so. We got married. You would have thought just everything would be perfect, but I was amazed, I was surprised when we got into an argument. We got into a fight on our honeymoon. How did that happen? Where did that come from? In the passage today, we're going to see what happens to Abraham after the mountaintop experience of the birth of the long-awaited promised son, Isaac. But before we look at the passage closer, let's review what's happened, briefly review what's happened to Abraham up to this point. When Abraham was about 75 and Sarah was about 65, God made this promise to him in Genesis chapter 12, verse 7. It said, The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. God promised Abraham offspring or children and a land in which he would dwell. Almost 10 years later, roughly 10 years later in Genesis chapter 16, it says, Abram's wife Sarai had not borne any children for him, but she owned an Egyptian slave named Hagar. Sarai said to Abram, since the Lord has prevented me from bearing children, go to my slave. Perhaps through her I can build a family. And Abram agreed to what Sarai said. So Abram's wife, Sarai, took Hagar, the Egyptian slave, and gave her to her husband, Abram, as a wife for him. This happened after Abram had lived in the land of Canaan 10 years. He slept with Hagar, and she became pregnant. So Hagar gave birth to Abram's son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old 
when Hagar bore Ishmael to him. Then, almost 13 years after that, in Genesis chapter 17, God comes back, talks to Abraham, tells him that Sarah, he renamed Sarai Sarah, and he renames Abram Abraham. He tells him Sarah's going to have a child, that that child will be his heir. And in Genesis 17, it says, Abraham fell face down. He laughed and said to himself, Can a child be born to a 100-year-old man? Can Sarah, a 90-year-old woman, give birth? So Abraham said to God, If only Ishmael were acceptable to you. And it says in verse 24, Genesis 17, Abraham was 99 years old and his son Ishmael was 13 years old. Finally, in Genesis chapter 21, last week, the teaching, verses 1 through 7 of Genesis 21, it says, Sarah became pregnant and bore a son to Abraham in his old age, At the appointed time, God had told him, Abraham was 100 years old when his son Isaac was born to him. So after waiting for around 25 years, the promised son Isaac was finally born. Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90, and Ishmael, who had been born to him earlier, would have been about 16 years old, or about 14 years old at this time. All were told about Isaac initially And the first part of Genesis 21 is he was born, he was circumcised, and that he brought laughter. Now, you know, if I was writing, I think I would have, you know, they were waiting for him for so long. I think I would have said something like, talk, talk, told about his first steps or whatever. But the next thing we see here uh, is that that he's going to be weaned. But you'd think after that mountaintop experience of the birth of Isaac, Everything would be wonderful. Abraham and Sarah would live, quote, happily ever after. But, but what we see in the rest of Genesis 21 are the valleys after the mountaintop as Abraham encounters two conflicts after the birth of Isaac. So we're going to look, divide the passage into two sections, two conflicts after Isaac's birth. The first is the conflict over Ishmael, and the second is the conflict with Abimelech. So first, the conflict over Ishmael. As we read this, we're going to look for the key word here in this section. In verse 8, it says, The child grew and was weaned, and Abram held a great feast on the day Isaac was weaned. A child back then was typically weaned when they were two to three years old. So Ishmael by now would have been about 16 or 17 years old. It says, Abraham held a great feast to celebrate Isaac being weaned. I can remember when one of our kids was weaned, Becky and I celebrated as well. We left the kids with the grandparents. We took off, got away for a day or two. We celebrated in our way. The way they celebrated apparently at that time was to have a great feast. The promised child was growing, but as one commentator said, no sooner is the promised child born than he becomes a source of tremendous conflict in the family. So how does that conflict start? In verse 9 it says, But Sarah saw the son mocking, the one Hagar the Egyptian had born to Abraham. Sarah saw the son, saw Ishmael mocking Isaac. Now, some translations, if you use the ESV, ESV uses the word laughter there instead of mocking. But how do we know it truly was mocking, that it was a mocking form of laughter? Galatians 4.29, Paul said, But just as then the child born as a result of the flesh persecuted the one born as a result of the Spirit, so also now. 
If Paul said Ishmael was persecuting Isaac, it must have been a mocking sort of laughter. And you actually see that with that word other places in the Old Testament. In verse 10, we see why Sarah wanted Hagar and Ishmael driven out. It says in verse 10, So she said to Abraham, Drive out this slave with her son, for the son of this slave will not be a co-heir with my son Isaac. Sarah didn't want Ishmael to inherit all that Abraham had acquired and accumulated. And we see Abraham really is caught here. He's caught in the middle between his two sons, both of which whom he loves, and their two moms. As we continue in verse 11, it says, this was very distressing to Abraham because of his son. Distress literally means this was very bad in the eyes of Abraham. Why was he distressed? Ishmael was his son as well. Ishmael had been his son for 14 years before Isaac was born. But the thing we notice, or the thing I notice in this, is this. In this distressing situation, God is at work behind the scenes. Verse 12, it says, But God said to Abraham, Do not be distressed about the boy and about your slave, Whatever Sarah says to you, listen to her, because your offspring will be traced through Isaac, and I will also make a nation of the slave's son, because he is your offspring. God tells Abraham, don't be distressed. Listen to your wife. Just as an aside here, guys, if you've got a wife, that's good advice. Listen to your wife. First Peter 3 says, live with your wife in an understanding way. And in verse 13, we see God promised to make a nation of Hagar, the slave's son, as well. One, comment, one commentator I read as I was looking at the passage said this, God is at work even in this situation where the Egyptian, when her son is threatened, is cast out in the wilderness, just like what will happen centuries later in Egypt when Pharaoh is threatened with the death of his firstborn son. Finally, he expels Israel out into the wilderness. But the key point I want us to get from this section is this. God is at work in every situation. Even when we're distressed, God's at work. We may not see it, we may not recognize it or realize it, but behind the scenes, God is at work. He's at work in every situation. And we need to realize that as well. In verse 14, it says, Early in the morning, Abraham got up, took bread and a water skin, put them on Hagar's shoulders, and sent her and the boy away. She left and wandered in the wilderness of Beersheba. Now, when you read that word wilderness, just actually think desert. Really, probably desert is a better description of where they were at. In fact, the desert where they were at typically has a rainfall of about four to maybe at most 12 inches per year. But we see Abraham obeys God quickly. It says he got up early in the morning. He took bread and a water skin. He gave them to Hagar sent her and the boy away, just as God had told him to do. Now, thinking about this, you might realize Abraham was actually a very rich man at this time. And he was distressed having to send Ishmael away. So you might ask the question, why did he send him away with just a water skin, one water skin, and seems like just a loaf of bread? Why didn't he send, you know, a camel or a whole caravan full of water and provisions for him? And I think the reason could be this. 
I do believe Abraham is trusting God's promise. He's trusting God's promise to provide for Ishmael and make a nation of him. In the past, Abraham had trusted his own efforts. He had trusted, you know, his, he and Sarah's scheming to say, Sarah, tell everybody you're my wife. He trusted in his own efforts, but now he's really, I think he's growing in his ability to trust what God says and not his own efforts. His own efforts had failed him in the past. So Abraham sent Hagar away. She wandered apparently lost in the wilderness or the desert in the region of Beersheba. And if you just, if you're curious even, I don't know, I, I've always liked maps. I've loved maps. So if we show the next page, you can see there's the map down in the lower, lower part there. There's Beersheba. In fact, if you've ever read through the Old Testament, at times you'll see in the Old Testament they'll talk about from Dan to Beersheba. Dan is clear of the north end of the, the, farther mo- the farther, farthest most northern part of Israel. Beersheba is toward the south end there. Beersheba is roughly 40 miles southwest of Jerusalem. And as we go on in verse 15, it says, when the water in the skin was gone, remember, Abraham just sent one skin of water, she, Hagar, left the boy under one of the bushes and went and sat at a distance about a bow shot away. I don't know for sure how long an arrow can be shot, but maybe 100 yards, I don't know, something like that. For she said, I can't bear to watch the boy die, which is a typical response, you know, for a mom. Now, I don't know if, you know, Ishmael had given his mom, let his mom have all the water if he was just a teenage boy and thought, oh, I'm great, I don't need anything. But... Hagar, they're at a point where Hagar is convinced that he's dehydrated, that Ishmael's going to die. And it says, while she sat at a distance, she wept loudly. Verse 17, again, in this distressing situation, we see God's at work. It says, God heard the boy crying. There's that word heard I told you to look for. And the angel of God called to Hagar from heaven and said to her, what's wrong, Hagar? Don't be afraid, for God has heard the boy crying from the place where he is. Again, God is a God who hears. God heard the boy crying. Mentions that twice. He says, get up, help the boy up, and grasp his hand, for I will make him a great nation. Just as God had heard Hagar, you might remember actually clear back in Genesis 16, when Hagar became pregnant, Sarah got jealous, sent her off. Hagar was wandering. She was weeping, and God at that time heard her cry of affliction in Genesis 16, 11. Um, He now hears her cry, but it specifically says Ishmael's cry as well. And just as God had promised Hagar back in Genesis chapter 16 that her offspring would be too many to count, he now promises, I'm going to make him a great nation. Same promise he had made to Abraham. God is still at work. And he is still a God who hears. Though Ishmael is never mentioned by name in this whole chapter, in chapter 21, we can't forget that when he was born, Abraham named him Ishmael. Why did he name Ishmael? Ishmael means God hears. God is a God who hears. He heard Hagar's cry. He heard Ishmael's cry. In verse 19, then it says, we see how God acts and how he resolves the problem, the conflict, the situation. It says, then God opened her eyes and she saw well. So she went and filled the water skin and gave the boy a drink. God was with the boy and he grew. He settled in the wilderness or the desert. 
He became an archer. He settled in the wilderness of Paran, and his mother got a wife for him from the land of Egypt. So God resolves the conflict. He opens Hagar's eyes to see a well. You can't survive in a desert for very long without water. He provides a well to provide water for her and Isaac. She fills the water skin, gives the boy a drink. And we see that he grew, he settled in the wilderness, and it says the wilderness of Paran, and just in case you're wondering, got a picture there, that red dot on the map is the wilderness of Paran, just kind of the north of the north end of the Sinai Peninsula. And notice that there's some trade routes, if you can see them on that map there, through the Sinai Peninsula, there were trade routes to Egypt. Hagar was Egyptian. Somehow, some way, she got an Egyptian wife for, for Ishmael. So, after the mountaintop experience of the birth of Isaac, when Abraham and Sarah got something they had waited for 25 years to experience, they experienced conflict over Ishmael. But even in that conflict, we see that God was at work through the situation, and Abraham was learning to trust God's promise to provide for Ishmael instead of trusting his own efforts. No sooner is the conflict over Ishmael resolved than Abraham experiences another conflict, this time with Abimelech. We saw Abimelech back in Genesis chapter 20. Chapter 20, verse 2, it says he was the king of Gerar, which was one of the Philistine towns, cities in the area. It was the area that Abraham was dwelling in. As we look at this, this, this passage, we're going to note the key word swear, not swear as in cursing, but swear as in taking an oath, do you solemnly swear to tell the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth, so help me God, as you're asked to swear in if you're a witness. And we'll also notice the key word seven in this passage. We're going to look at the word swear and seven as key words. Verse 22, it says then, at that time Abimelech, accompanied by Phicol, the commander of his army, said to Abraham, God is with you in everything you do. Abimelech had seen how when he had taken Sarah into his harem, God had shut the wombs of all the people in his, of all the women in his kingdom. God basically protected and provided for Abraham and Abimelech goes, God's with you. So what's he do as a result? Verse 23, he says, swear to me by God here and now that you will not break an agreement with me or with my children and descendants. As I've been loyal to you, so you'll be loyal to me and to the country where you are a resident alien. Essentially he's saying to Abraham, swear to me, make a treaty with me. You're going to be my ally. We're, you know, we're, we're going to be on the same side. He didn't want to have Abraham opposing him because he saw God was with Abraham in everything he did. And notice at the very end it says that Abraham, he recognized Abraham as a resident alien. Even though Abraham was living at this time actually in the land that God had promised them. If you go back to Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, it says that God promised Abraham all the land from the river of Egypt to the Euphrates River. This would be part of that land. But in spite of the fact that God had promised him that land, he wasn't possessing it yet. He was an alien in that land. As we go on then in verse 24... Abimelech asked Abraham to make an oath to swear that he, you know, that they would be allies with one another. Verse 24 says, and Abraham said, I swear it. But then in verse 25, we see the conflict with Abimelech. 
It says, but Abraham complained to Abimelech because of the well that Abraham's servants had seized. Again, a well is a critical piece of land in a desert area. You can't survive for long if you don't have a source of water. You're, you're going you know, to die of thirst. So it says, Abraham complains to Abimelech. We got a conflict here, Abimelech. You know, you know, we're, we're making this alliance, this pact this, with one another. But Abimelech replies very quickly. It says in verse 26, Abimelech replied, I don't know who did this thing. You didn't report anything to me, so I hadn't heard about it until today. Abimelech quickly gives three excuses. I didn't know about it. You didn't tell me. I hadn't heard about it. Today's the first time. So what do they do then in this conflict? Verse 27, it says, Abraham took flocks and herds and gave them to Abimelech. Back in chapter 20, Abimelech had given Abraham flocks and herds. Now Abraham's giving him flocks and herds back. And it says, the two of them made a covenant. It says, Abraham separated seven ewe lambs from the flock. And Abimelech said to Abraham, why have you separated these seven ewe lambs? So twice we see here the word seven. Then in verse 30 again, it says, Abraham replied, he replied, Abraham, you're to accept the seven ewe lambs from me so that this act will serve as my witness that I dug this well. So Abraham's saying, I dug this well. Your servants took it from me. Take these seven ewe lambs. It's going to be a witness between us that this is my well. It says in verse 31, therefore that place was called Beersheba because it was there that the two of them swore an oath. There's that word swore, swear or swore. They swore an oath to one another. Beersheba actually means well of the oath or it can also mean well of seven. Remember Abraham had given seven ewe lambs so Beersheba means well of the oath or well of seven. Interestingly, not only does this passage note the seven ewe lambs, but Abraham and Abimelech are mentioned by name in the Hebrew Bible seven times each. Now you won't notice that if, if you count it up in most of your English translations. If you look, you're probably going to say, wait, Bruce, Abraham's mentioned here eight times. Well, that's only because in English, down in verse 33, they use the word Abraham, like in the CSB version that we're using, but it's not in the Hebrew version. In fact, for many, many years, I used the New American Standard Bible. One of the things I liked about the New American Standard Bible is it would include in italics words that, were, that the translators had put in that were not in the translation. If you look in verse 33 in the New American Standard, Abraham is in italics. The translators just put it in to make sure you knew instead of saying he, that the he was referring to Abraham and not Abimelech. So it's the well of the oath, or they swore an oath, or the well of seven. And as we go on then, they've made this oath, they've made this covenant, everything's good between Abraham and Abimelech, conflict seems to be resolved. Verse 32, it says, after they made a covenant at Beersheba, Abimelech and Phicol, the commander of his army, left and return to the land of the Philistines. Again, one more map. You can see there's Beersheba down. It, you know, toward the bottom there in the middle, Gerar was where Abimelech was the king of, where he was from in red in the middle. Gaza is a, another Philistine city. So between Gerar, Gerar and Gaza, that's kind of the area of the Philistines. That's where Abimelech returned to. Abraham's living in Beersheba at the time. And in verse 33, says, Abraham planted a tamarisk tree in Beersheba, and there he called on the name of the Lord, the everlasting God. I had two questions when I looked at this. 
what's a tamarisk tree? I don't, I've never seen a tamarisk tree that I know of. And why did Abraham plant one? Well, a tamarisk tree found out is this. It's a small to medium-sized tree that can grow up to 30 feet tall. It's an evergreen that's native to dry areas of southern Europe, northern Africa, and western Asia. Why did Abraham plant one? Well, may just be because the tree is known for its ability to cool and provide shade for desert, desert travelers. Maybe by now he had heard of what had happened with Sarah and Hagar and just thought, okay, you know, be good to have one of these. But I think it's also because Abraham was taking time to worship God here at Beersheba, to plant a tree to remember that God had provided for him. He provided a son. He provided land for him to dwell in it, even if he wasn't actually completely possessing it. God had provided water, so important in the desert, and a season of peace. And as we close the passage in verse 34, it says, Abraham lived as an alien in the land of the Philistines for many days. Abraham's living as an alien. Though he'd had the mountaintop experience of the birth of the son promised to them after waiting 25 years, he's still waiting to possess the land that God's promised to him. But through it all, he appears to be growing in his confidence of what God says to him, that he can trust God's promises. That's something he's definitely going to need in the next chapter in Genesis 22, if you know what's going to happen there next week as we, as we cover that. He's also realizing that this world and the things of this world ultimately do not satisfy, that true satisfaction's found only in a relationship with, as he refers to him in, in verse 33, a relationship with the everlasting God. As Christians, we're aliens in this world too. Second Peter chapter 2 tells us that we are aliens and strangers in this world. We need to learn that God alone satisfies and not the things of this world. One of my favorite Christian artists was Rich Mullins. Rich Mullins many years ago wrote and sang this song titled My One Thing. It goes like this. Everybody I know says they need just one thing. What they really mean is they need just one thing more. And everybody seems to think they've got it coming. Well, I know that I don't deserve you. Still, I'm going to love and serve you more and more. You're my one thing. Save me from those things that might distract me. Please take them away and purify my heart. I don't want to lose the eternal on the things that are passing. For what will I have when this world is gone if it isn't for the love that goes on and on with my one thing? You're my one thing. Is Jesus your one thing? Or are you still looking to find satisfaction in the things of this world. Mick Jagger in the Rolling Stones sang many years ago a song titled, I Can't Get No Satisfaction. And I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and I've tried, and I can't get no satisfaction. And I'm convinced Mick Jagger was right. He couldn't get satisfaction because he was looking for satisfaction in the wrong place. He was looking for satisfaction in the things of this world, and the things of this world ultimately will never satisfy us. They're going to disappoint us. As I thought about this, and I thought about Jesus as being our one thing, led me to this question. How do we see Jesus in this passage? I've heard it said that in the Old Testament, Jesus is concealed. In the New Testament, he's revealed. So how is Jesus kind of concealed in this passage? And as I thought about it, I thought, I think it's here. 
in both passages, we see the importance of a well. The well that God opened Hagar's eyes to, to see the well of water so that she and Ishmael would be saved. And likewise, the well that Abraham and Abimelech had had a conflict over, because you need a well, as we said, you need a well in the desert if you're going to survive. And I, I thought of Jesus' words when he met with the woman at the well in John chapter 4, verse 14. He said, whoever drinks from the water that I give him will never get thirsty again. In fact, the water I give him will become a well of water springing up in him for eternal life. I just have to ask this question. Have you drank from the water that Jesus alone can give? Is he your one thing? If not... What are you waiting for? Why not put your faith, your trust in him today? Do as Abraham, believe, put your faith and trust in God. So we've worked through the passage. How do we apply this passage to our lives? We're going to look briefly at three ways we can put these verses into practice in our lives. First, one way we can put this passage into practice is to see conflict as an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness. Abraham encountered two conflicts, conflict with Sarah over Ishmael and then a conflict with Abimelech. But it seems that he grows in faith as he trusts God's promises. Now, true confessions for many, many years, I pretty well tried to avoid conflicts. Seems like I always thought life was easier, you know, if I could avoid conflicts. As we went through the re-engage marriage ministry, a number of you here have done that, have been doing that this summer, Remember, one of the things I learned in the re-engaged marriage ministry was we can look at conflict really as an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness, to glorify God by learning how to speak the truth to one another in love. Many of us speak the truth but don't do it in love or we try to act loving and don't speak the truth. We should view conflict as an opportunity to grow to be more like Christ. Now, I don't have a lot of time, can't develop that today, Watermark Church, where we got the re-engaged marriage ministry, I know they included this with re-engaged materials, but they have a little handout. It's like a four-page handout, real small type on it. But if you want to learn how to resolve conflicts, work through conflicts in a way that will glorify God more, I've got a few copies of this. Come ask me for them afterwards. If I run out of them, I can get your name, email. I can email it to you then later on. So anyway, first way we can apply this passage, see conflict as an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness. Secondly, put your hope in God and not the things of this world. As I was studying this, a couple things Kevin DeYoung said, or several things that he said stuck out to me. Here's one. Kevin DeYoung said this as he was looking at this passage. Do you ever find yourself, even on your best days, even when the prayers are answered, still find yourself hoping for more, wanting more, expecting more, even the fulfillment of your dreams does not make the ache go away. No one wants to have their dreams unfulfilled, but you know what is sometimes worse than having your dreams unfulfilled? It's having your dreams come true and realizing that you are still the same person, and you still have the same issues inside you, and you still deal with the same sort of unhappiness. At least, if your dreams are unfulfilled, you can just keep holding out, if only, if only. If only I had whatever it is, Married, kids, grandkids, new job, cottage on the lake, whatever. If only I had that, it would all come together for me. I think DeYoung is pointing out the things of this world do not satisfy. We need to put our hope in God 
and not in the things of this world. Many years ago, I remember God pointed this out to me, and one day as I was reading in my quiet time, came to Psalm 42, and I had struggled at times with discouragement and getting down. Psalm 42, verse 5, and essentially you get the same, gets repeated in verse 11, and in Psalm 43, verse 5, it says this, Why, my soul, are you so dejected? Why are you in such turmoil? Put your hope in God, for I will still praise him, my Savior and my God. And I realized I got discouraged, I got down, because I was putting my hope in me and my abilities. And you know what? There's not a lot of hope in me and my abilities, but if I put my hope in God, who's omnipotent, who's all-powerful, that's a real source of hope. We need to put our hope in God and not the things of this world. Finally, third application, we need to understand this world's not our home. There's an old song that says, this world is not my home, I'm just a passing through. My treasures are laid up somewhere beyond the blue. The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. And I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Oh Lord, you know I have no friend like you. If heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door and I can't feel at home in this world anymore. Another quote from Kevin DeYoung. Kevin DeYoung said this, talking about this passage again. He said, maybe in your life you and I are meant to realize perhaps the feeling that even our best days leave us aching for something more. Maybe you were made for something more. Maybe you're not meant to find 100% satisfaction on any day in this life because you were made for more than this life. Those words reminded me of C.S. Lewis' words in Mere Christianity where he said, If I find in myself desires that nothing in this world can satisfy, the only logical explanation is that I was made for another world. So we need to see conflict as an opportunity to grow in Christ-likeness. We need to put our hope in God, not the things of this world, and we need to understand this world's not our home. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for your word today, Lord. We do praise you because you are a God who's always at work, even in situations where we may not recognize it or see it. Lord, I pray for each and every one of us, Lord. I pray for myself. Help us to be more Christ-like. Help us, Lord, to realize that you use conflicts to help us to grow to be more like you. Lord, may we put our hope in you and not in the things of this world. May we understand, Lord, this world's not our home, that you've made us for another better world. We pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. At this time...